Insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Greg Mogul. I'm the Chief Medical Officer for CareSelect at Change Healthcare. My guest today is Dr. Ryan Lee, who is the Vice Chair of Quality and Safety at the Einstein Healthcare Network in Philadelphia. I've asked him to join us today to discuss clinical decision support. Since the passage of the Protecting Access to Medicare Act, or PAMA, many healthcare systems have focused on implementing CDS as a regulatory obligation, but the mandate is really only part of the story. Ryan and I will discuss how decision support can help health systems reach goals, uh, the potential applications of CDS across care settings, and how emerging technologies like AI and many others may impact the radiology value chain. Good afternoon, Ryan. It's good to chat with you again. Good afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, you know, you have many titles that's uh, reflective of your long experience across academic and professional societies and your impact on the field of radiology. We're both practicing radiologists. And so um, I'd like to give you the floor for a moment or two to introduce yourself to us. Tell us um, about your work at Einstein and Jefferson, and how did you get where you are today? Sure. Uh, my name is Brian Lee. As, as Greg mentioned, I work at Einstein Healthcare Network here in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. I am the Vice Chair of Quality and Safety in the Radiology Department, and I'm also the Section Chief of Neuroradiology. In my capacity as Vice Chair of Quality, I've been I've been fortunate to be uh, asked to lead our efforts on clinical decision support, uh, as I, I do feel that clinical decision support really touches a lot of different areas. But I think first and foremost, it's it's a quality issue, and that's that's where my interest comes in, and that's why we've been I've been involved in clinical decision support far far before the actual mandate. So it's been a, a quite some time since we've been uh, doing it here at Einstein. Great, um, you know. Uh, we're going to talk a lot today about how clinical decision support uh, impacts and can impact uh, healthcare delivery way beyond, as you said, the mandate or the simple compliance issue. And I'm, we'll be focusing on that uh, later on in the call. Um, I'm, I'm, there is one, uh, there's one, one of your many titles and accomplishments I'm going to uh, call out and embarrass you a little maybe. Um, but in addition to a lot of your publications and work with the American College of Radiology, you actually are uh, a key panel member in determining some of the appropriate use criteria that we here at Change Healthcare use in Care Select, aren't you? Yes, I am. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. In the American College of Radiology, there are actually multiple committees that deal with appropriate use criteria in which uh, the ACR specifically calls in, in their in their context the appropriateness criteria. In fact, I, I think the ACR may be one of the oldest, if not the oldest, to have a set of criteria um, that can be used um, to determine what are the best studies to do for a given reason. So just, just a little bit of history, there were these appropriateness criteria which were developed by the ACR, and I believe it's now over 25 years because the 25th anniversary was several years wow. ago. So we might be even closer to 30 years. And this predates uh, the concept of CDS or clinical decision support as, as a software. And this basically was just big binders um, of the same material. And what this material was, was different indications 
and then the possible studies that could be done ranked in order of appropriateness. And it's actually the same scale we use today uh, in the committee. So the, this was literally sitting on bookshelves for, for many, many years. And unfortunately, it probably didn't get as used as much as it should have, just because it's not very convenient. When you're a practicing physician taking care of a patient, I doubt that you broke out this appropriateness criteria, which were thousands of pages to figure out which was the best study. And so I think that was one of the limitations was access, but the concept was there. And the way that these things are vetted um, is actually the same way we do it now, except now it's much more intense because of the fact that we have CDS. So now what we have are we have subspecialty committees that specifically look at appropriateness criteria for specific subsections in radiology. So for example, I am on one of the three neuroradiology panels that helps to decide what the ratings for specific indications and the studies will be. And so it's a very intense process in which we review the literature and we discuss as a group what are different uh, different approaches to doing things and what different air, what different networks do and we ultimately vote on them and we actually go through several voting rounds and in between each of these voting rounds there's a discussion before the final voting round is actually done a document is produced which actually explains all the different variants of why you want to do a study so for example headache is a, is a common indication but there are many different types of headaches and so there are different what they call variants of headaches and each of those variants may have different studies that are most appropriate and each of those variants are scored in a different way, depending on what, what the sub-indications for. And so these subcommittees are, uh, are, are composed of experts that will actually go through these. So I happen to be on one of the neuroradiology subcommittees and have helped to uh, rate um, and ultimately come out with these documents, which ultimately will be used as kind of an engine, if you, if you think about it, for this clinical decision support software. So this software will be basing its recommendations on these vetted criteria, such as the appropriateness criteria from the American College of Radiology. Well, um, yeah, it is a rigorous process and you've certainly captured it well. Um, it's because of that rigor and uh, engagement of data and uh, treating uh, the uh, outcomes as evidence-based that the American College of Radiology, along with uh, just a limited number of other societies, have CMS's approval as so-called qualified physician-led entities. Those entities uh, produce, as you said, the, um, the basic information that we at Change Healthcare use in Care Select as the content to guide appropriateness and uh, image ordering. So I appreciate, I think I appreciate you going through that, and I think it's important. For people to understand um, that what what is presented, the information that's presented is um, is rigorously drawn up, and not just by radiologists, but by uh, participating specialists in addition to radiologists. So when uh, these committees are formed, there are practicing clinicians from that specialty as well as imagers. So thanks for giving us that background. Um, before I jump into the really uh, the meat of it, which I think is really the, I, I'm hoping we'll talk about the, the the real practical implications of CDS beyond compliance. Could you just give us a minute or two on um, how, as a radiologist, CDS impacts and CDS being clinical decision support 
impacts your clinical priorities and how radiology is practiced um, before we get into how it impacts the clinicians that order it and the health system at large? Sure. It impacts the radiologists because we now have a vetted set of criteria that's transparent and reproducible that's the same across the board. And what it does is it, it removes um, anecdotal things that perhaps a clinician may, may just say, you know, this is how I've ordered and passed for an indication like this. This is what I'm going to do. So that's how the power of CDS using this vetted criteria can be, at least from that perspective. And I guess we'll get into that shortly. From a radiologist's point of view, you know, a radiologist spends a large part of, of time interpreting studies. In addition to a lot of things that we do to also manage patients, one core part of what we do is literally interpreting studies and, uh, and giving our impressions for these studies. A lot of times during the course of the workday, we would get calls from clinicians asking about what the best study to do is for a given indication. Now, actually, those kind of calls can be very useful, especially when you have a specific a circumstance which might have which might require some out-of-the-box thinking or some unique reasons for doing certain things but in general there are there are a set of criteria that we can use that apply to most of most of the time and this is where CDS can be very useful because if we can have a system that automatically gives the clinicians the answer they need when they're ordering it we don't have to stop people's workflows both the clinicians and the radiologists to have to to have to stop and deal with something that's fairly rudimentary for I would say the vast majority of cases. And of course, when there are specific circumstances, very useful and encouraged to have a doctor to doctor discussion. But I think it helps to streamline and it it, it reduces that amount of time that we as radiologists can use to either see patients, interpret studies or communicate results. Um, so it can be very useful from that standpoint. Outstanding. Uh, that's that's uh, my experience as well as a radiologist, and um, I think you've captured that, that perfectly. Um, uh, you said uh, early on that you've been involved with the development and deployment and, uh, and, and certainly uh, your publications and your work uh, proves that for a long time, long before this PAMA or Protecting Access to Medical Care uh, Act was put in place. That's what drove a lot of people to CDS because we won't spend a lot of time talking about the law. People can look that up or they probably know about it already from their compliance organizations that every high-end imaging study needs to be put forth that's, that's going to Medicare for reimbursement needs to be sent with a code and documentation that the clinician consulted a qualified clinical decision support system such as care select in making their their choice um, but you and i both got involved in this field uh, long before that was required now uh, einstein you know uh, as an organization um, maybe put in care select initially because of the compliance or not even initially but but maybe doubled down on it because of the compliance requirements but what I know from working with you and Einstein and, and several other forward-looking groups is that while the PAMA mandate reflects very specifically ambulatory settings um, in Medicare patients, which in Medicare uh, eligible patients, which obviously implies a certain age as well, um, Einstein has done a lot of work in deploying 
decision support in settings that fall outside of the PAMA mandate? I mean, I'll just name two, um, and maybe you have some comments or thoughts about them. Uh, one is the pediatric population. Um, certainly, uh, the PCARN criteria, um, uh, which uh, reflect on uh, pediatric uh, management of trauma, um, is an area that Einstein has been a leader in, and, and you've been working that angle. And also, um, on uh, when it comes to uh, inpatient imaging, which falls outside of the PAMA mandate, um, I'm wondering if you see application of CDS for inpatient imaging um, or other areas that are outside of the mandate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would argue that the inpatient management and using of CDS is in some ways perhaps even more important from a, from a network or a hospital point of view. Really? Yeah, from an inpatient point of view, so many of the listeners may or may not know that how we get reimbursed on inpatients is actually very different from outpatients. And on the inpatient side, just to sort of distill it down, essentially we get paid for something called a diagnosis-related group. So you get paid for an encounter. So for example, if you came in for appendicitis, you would get paid some amount of money that was predetermined for the most part. And whatever is done in the hospital doesn't get additional money. It's that same pot of money that CMS will reimburse you for uh, to take care of that, to take care of that uh, ailment or that illness. And so what that means is there's actually an incentive from the hospital side to only use those resources that are necessary to take care of the patient. Because you're not going, if you do 10 CT scans for that patient that, that's an inpatient, you're not going to get any more money. You're just going to get that predetermined amount of money to take care of that patient. And so if you look at it from that standpoint, from the hospital point of view, you want to make sure that everything that you do for the patient is necessary. Now, you don't want to skip out on anything, obviously, um, because you're also held to quality metrics as well to make sure that your patients are actually doing well. But you do want to make sure that whatever you are expending for resources is actually appropriate and should be done. And that is exactly the, the whole purpose of clinical decision support. And so I, I would say that there is just as much, if not more, utility on an inpatient standpoint to make sure that we're ordering these studies appropriately for whatever the reason is that the patient is there. Yeah, that's okay. That's a that's a great point. Um, does does um, do do you think there is? Uh, I mean, is it your experience that some inpatient ordering is maybe outside of appropriateness guidelines? Yes. Uh, so. Technically, from a CMS standpoint, you don't have to use the clinical decision support software on inpatients. But absolutely, I think there's a, there's a lot of use potentially to adapt CDS even specific to an inpatient uh, application. So, for example, a common common issue that occurs at, at Einstein and I suspect across lots of different networks is that you will get asked for an order for an MRA of the Circle of Willis after a patient has already had a CTA of the Circle of Willis. Um, maybe as that was ordered in the ED, the patient gets admitted, um, and now somebody ordered uh, an MRA of the Circle of Willis. Now, for, for the listeners, the CTA would be the gold standard study, and an MRA of the Circle of Willis is, generally speaking, actually not quite as good as a CTA, but it can be ordered as an alternative. Certainly, however, once you have a CTA of the Circle of Willis, 
there's no reason to get an MRA of the circles, assuming the CTA was diagnostic. And so those studies really add nothing to the patient's care. And it's right. something that we see sort of recurrently, depending on which service uh, the patient is on. And this is the kind of thing that actually introduces waste into the system. So there's really no reason to get an MRA unless, as I said, that the CTA was non-diagnostic. And if we can minimize or eliminate the ordering of those MRAs, because what ends up happening is either I or I'll tell the resident to call the service and say, hey, did you know this patient had a CTA? And a lot of times they may not have been aware because there's a handoff. And this is one of the one of the things that we that I think that we see in our hospital system and other hospital systems, sometimes the communication could be better. And that's something we certainly are working on. But one of the things that we want to do is, is there a way that we can eliminate those automatically or minimize it? And one way could be to build, for example, a subroutine in your CDS software uh, that if somebody has had a CTA of the Circle of Willis within the past 24 or maybe 48 hours, that there a flag comes up and asks the physician, hey, did you know that this patient had a CTA? Do you still want it? And so these are the kind of things that are, I think, issues specific to inpatients that we could even adapt clinical decision support to really nail down some of these issues uh, for inpatients. That's really exciting. I I, I think your your vision uh, of the idea that that clinical decision support is a starting point uh, in many cases once it is reliably deployed and you're getting good, clean data on a regular basis can be a starting point for all kinds of other quality and safety um, measures. Uh, I think that's a great insight. Certainly um, doing uh, an MRI on an inpatient is never a simple matter, even beyond uh, the, um, the the cost issues. So um, I, I, I think that there's a, I agree with you. I see where the upsides are. Um, uh, how about how about uh, p the pediatric population? Um, also, you know, whether inpatient or outpatient. Uh, obviously, given the fact that Medicare generally kicks in at 65 for most people, other I mean, there are some people under 65, you know, with life situations um, or disabilities where Medicare may kick in early. But for the vast majority, we're talking about 65 and older. Um, but uh, are you familiar? I'm sure you are. That's a that's a setup question with the PCARN criteria. And um, is there uh, is is are you do you see a, do you see a value proposition in CDS for a pediatric population? Yeah. Yes. The the short answer is yes, and that's exactly why we implemented you know the PCARN algorithm for our pediatric patients and. You're absolutely right. So for the most part, CMS deals with that for that older population. And so probably this would not be invoked in most pediatric cases. Um, but that does not mean just because it's it's not used for that specific application, that does not mean there's not use for CDS. And that's exactly what we believe. So uh, just as a, as a brief uh, overview of PCARN, it was a, a set of criteria that was developed actually by an emergency uh, 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 research group that came up with criteria to determine when it was appropriate to order head CTs on pediatric patients who've had minor head trauma. As you can imagine, uh, head trauma in pediatric patients can be a very charged event, especially for the parents who yes. understandably want to do everything possible for their child. And so a lot of times this may lead to ordering of a lot of head CTs because everyone's anxious. And as it turns out, as you can imagine, most of these 
PET CTs in the case of minor pediatric head trauma end up being negative. So the question ends up becoming, is there a set of criteria that we can use that, that's reliable of telling us when we really don't need to order head CT? And that's exactly what these PCON criteria get to handle on. So what we did was we worked with, your care, with the care select engineers and we literally implemented the criteria of PCARN into a subroutine so that it knew, so when CDS ran, it automatically knew the age of the patient. All, all the doctor uh, or the order provider would have to do is tell, tell it, is this being done for trauma? And if it did, it would automatically run this subroutine. Um, and you would just pick five, there's about, I think, six bullet points that it would ask you to, to, uh, to annotate. And then after that, it would give you the recommendation whether or not to order a head CT in that patient. And so we thought that this was, a, this was just a great way of implementing uh, a clinical decision support. And I'll, I'll just note that this is actually a different application of traditional clinical decision support. So the clinical decision support that we've been talking about up until this point is deciding what is the best study to order. So we've already decided we want to order a study. And the question we're asking the clinical decision support software, the care select software in our case, is which is the best study to do given this indication? But we've already decided to order the study. Now, we can still affect how much we're using expensive studies, sophisticated studies, um, versus something that's a little bit more, uh, that's more cost effective, such as an x-ray and ultrasound. So we can affect things that way. We're not affecting getting the study versus not getting a study. And this implementation of PCARD looks at it from a different standpoint. We already know what study we want to order. The question is, should we order the study? And this, when you think about it that way, this kind of CDS has the potential to really affect um, ordering habits from how many studies you obtain uh, in a much more even uh, aggressive way. Because here we're going to tell the clinician the recommendation is just not to order the study. So we can save uh, a lot of studies, and in the case of pediatrics, which is especially important, we're saving unnecessary radiation for, for those patients. So we thought that was a very exciting way to look at the, the use of CDS in a, in a kind of a different manner. And so this wow. is have this uh, run uh, to this day. So that's, that's really exciting, and I'm glad you brought up that issue of um, whether, you know, we're starting with the order, i.e. the CT, or we're starting with the condition to determine if imaging is even necessary, it's a great point. And the and the radiation issue in children, even though outside PAMA is is really a massive issue. So so this is really uh, exciting work that you did. Um, uh, are there results you can share with us? Did you see a change in utilization or a change in practice patterns um, around uh, pediatric head trauma CT ordering? We we actually did, and. I we did this study several years ago, but I believe we showed about around a 30% reduction. In wow. <laughs> 30. Um, wow. Yeah, somewhere between 25% and 30%. So it, it is effective. And I, I think part of it is how you implement. We, to our the, to the credit of our emergency department, this was, this was absolutely a collaborative effort. And so they were involved every step of the way. Um, we had key leaders on both sides uh, looking at how to deploy this. And it was it was a it was a collaborative effort, and I think it was one of the reasons why it was successful. You know, um, uh, CareSelect is installed at 
almost a thousand health systems. Um, and Einstein certainly has done an incredible job um, with it. And I, I'm, I'm actually going to press you on that issue, uh, what, what you just mentioned, because I, I, I think it's, it's really, in many cases, what makes the difference in the experience, which is you said that it was a collaborative effort. A lot of institutions start with the idea that because this is about medical imaging and, and radiology, there's a there's a kind of a short circuit that this is a radiology project. Um, that um, that is doesn't sound like that's how Einstein handled it. Um, you described the collaborative effort. Could you could you talk to us a little bit about um, how you know the importance of that or the approach and how to get collaboration, what the role of the um, ordering clinicians is in a successful implementation of CDS? Yeah, I would say that the, the collaboration is key. And in fact, the most important player here is the ordering physician. So, you know, we, we ended up having a very collaborative effort, but I should really, in full disclosure, tell you that we learned from our mistakes. And so before we actually came to Carislet, we actually used another vendor. I'll give a little history of how we, we got to where we are today. And that it was kind of the failure of that to work properly that really showed us um, what was necessary to be done uh, in, in order to have a successful, uh, successful clinical decision support system. The first, our first attempt at doing this with, with another vendor uh, we did not do, I think, as robust a collaborative effort as we could have. And on the surface, from a radiology point of view, it seemed to me that, oh, wow, this, is a, this looks to be a great thing. And it was, in practice, not so good. And what ended up, being ha what ended up happening was we did have some pilot physicians that were involved, uh, but not nearly enough, I would say, but enough to show to show us that they really universally panned it. There were just a lot of logistic things that somebody, a radiologist like myself, who doesn't routinely order things day in, day out, would not necessarily have picked up. And it ended up being a very uh, arduous task, which really slowed down the productivity of those pilot physicians that were involved. And it came to the point where we realized that no matter how we tweaked it, it was never going to be uh, in a position that we thought would would be accepted by the physicians. And we probably should have involved them earlier on in, in the project to realize that and it wasn't until we had quite a bit invested in that we realized that it just wasn't gonna work. So going to the second round, once we, we now came in with, uh, with Care Select, we sort of came in knowing that we need to involve these, our clinical colleagues much earlier in the process. And we, we went for a much wider diversity of physicians. So we got physicians from all different departments, internal medicine, family practice, surgery, neurology. We tried to have a cross-section of doctors involved so that the feedback we've, we were hoping to get was a little bit more inclusive. But one of the things that we wanted to do, we wanted to know immediately was the, the workflow. And that really was the key. You know, I'm a radiologist, so I'm not ordering these things day to day. It's their feedback that's really critical. How does this affect how they practice? You know, when they see a patient, when they decide to order these studies, how does that workflow work? And that was the kind of feedback that was critical and why you really need to have a collaborative effort with those doctors that are actually going to be interacting with the software day in and day out. And, I, and as I said, I think we learned early on that we needed to start that process much sooner.
You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare platform. We provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. You know, Ryan, it wouldn't be uh, 2021 if we didn't talk about AI. Um, AI and radiology is certainly a hot, hot, hot topic. Um, And when most people think of uh, artificial intelligence and radiology, they imagine uh, computers reading images. And uh, and that's certainly um, part of what I think we all believe uh, AI will bring to medical imaging and improving uh, the quality of medical imaging. Um, But, you know, you've written a lot about the impact of artificial intelligence on radiology. Um, and, And you know better than most people that AI has potential implications outside of image interpretation. Um, uh, Change Healthcare uh, and CareSelect use artificial intelligence, for instance, in exactly the last use case you just mentioned. Um, We recognized the uh, problems that people were having identifying the right reason for a study, the indication, and we found that the use of artificial intelligence tools in helping uh, pre-select or curate a list of possible indications that a clinician will use has dramatically reduced the number of unscored studies, that is, studies where score could be determined. Um, uh, and, and of course, that works differently in, in different um, electronic medical records. But, but what I'd like to know from you is, do you see artificial intelligence having having an impact on aspects of radiology practice other than interpreting the images instead of a human interpreting? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, you're right. I think the first thing people think about when they think about AI is image interpretation. So we have lots of algorithms that can help uh, triage or even make findings of intracranial hemorrhage, pulmonary embolism, you know, fractures, pulmonary nodules. And I think those get a lot of press. Certainly when you go to the big meetings and when you go to RSNA, there's certainly there's certainly a lot of vendors um, that show you algorithms that can do these kind of things. And that certainly is going to be a huge component, um, possibly revolutionary component in radiology moving forward. And I like to use the term, and many others have, not artificial intelligence, but this concept of augmented intelligence that the radiologist plus the software combined can do better than either alone. And so I think as we look towards the future, those kind of diagnostic algorithms that help, uh, that look at the disease patterns and images is gonna be very important and will be, play a very critical role uh, for radiologists. But again, I think it's going to be that combination that's gonna be successful, not one or the other. You make an excellent point though. And I, I think that there has been much less press on the use of artificial intelligence in non-diagnostic radiology. In other words, other than image interpretation, are there other uses? And I would argue that these non-diagnostic uses are just as important and perhaps maybe even more important. There, there are just so many applications that we can use sophisticated software to help, whether it's in workflow, whether it's in communication, and certainly whether it's in appropriate appropriateness of ordering of studies. 
um, I'm very excited to uh, to get my hands on when it's available the, the the use of artificial intelligence in the CDS software that takes into account many other factors besides just the the indication um, looking at patient comorbidities looking at the patient location looking at the the ordering provider are they a neurologist are they an oncologist are they are they an emergency room doctor all these things play into what might be the most appropriate study for a given indication. And so there are so many things that we can account for that I think makes the, the artificial intelligence sort of use case in CDS very exciting because you know we're in, in an age of data. In fact, we have too much information at times and using software and artificial intelligence that can help us sort through this and take advantage of these, uh, of the different unique scenarios of each patient can only be a positive. So I, I see that as a very exciting field specifically for uh, clinical decision support. Yeah, the, um, uh, yes, the uh, emergency medical record is full of useful and not so useful information as we've all discovered. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I wonder if you think that's an area where artificial intelligence that's focused on imaging appropriateness um, could could essentially work to make our practice better in the future. I mean, I, I guess at a larger level, what are you excited about um, uh, in uh, decision support, in uh, whether it's from artificial intelligence or other technologies, the way that the way that you're curating, you know, your decision support at Einstein is outstanding. What excites you about the next few years in this space? I think what excites me is kind of what excites me in general about what we can do with data. And so what I mean by that is, as you mentioned, there is so much data, whether it's in the EMR, whether it's already in our PAC system, on each individual patient. When you think about how we take care of patients, a lot of times we're sort of taking a population approach. So for example, when we when we do CT scans, the, the approach that we're doing is we're gonna use the dose that's generally speaking, for a specific size of the patient. And so that's what the scout image is designed for, is to kind of look at grossly what the BMI and look at what the body habitus is and adjust your dose accordingly. But think of all the additional information that we can use to really tailor it to a specific patient, their cardiac output, their comorbidities. If we consider all these microscopic factors in some sense to really tailor things that we do specific to that patient, I think we're doing we're doing we're we're giving much better healthcare to that patient. The same goes true for clinical decision support. By incorporating a lot of these factors, these sort of these unique factors for each patient, you know, what are their comorbidities? Why are they here? You know, what cancer do they have? Who is their ordering doctor? Where are they? Are they in the inpatient setting? Are they in the ED? These are all factors that we can consider to help tailor a study even better. And I think that's the whole process of really a in general what we can say is that ai and what we can do in the future is how can we take this massive amount of information and make it actually useful to us so how can we translate all this stuff to be useful for a specific patient and that's what's exciting to me wow that's a that's a great vision um you know i'm going to take this opportunity uh selfishly to ask you a question um that it may be a bit inside baseball, but your expertise and my opportunity 
to talk to you about this is something I'd like to take advantage of, and I hope our listeners will benefit as well. Um, you you mentioned uh, a very important uh, what, but what might otherwise seem like a subtle uh, issue uh, earlier in the discussion around how CDS works, if you will. Um, the idea being uh, that a clinician uh, starts at the point that they've uh, ordered an imaging study, um, and then are presented with or or enter uh, reasons for that imaging study. You talked, uh, I think, really eloquently about the idea of, it, in many cases, it isn't what other imaging study is appropriate, but the fact that no imaging may be appropriate. Um, is it, you've been around CDS a long time. Uh, why, how did we get to the point where, uh, I think when, when it started, many of us saw it happening and being used in a way that started with the patient's problem and then ended up at imaging. But the practical implications of CDS everywhere are, um, it starts with imaging. Um, how do you think we got here? And are we always going to be here? I think part of how that the whole process of when CDS became something that was on CMS's radar was acknowledging that we had a lot of imaging that was being done and how do we get a handle on it? And so the idea was, if we can figure out the proper indications, that's one way to get a handle on it. And, and so one of the seminal, one of the, the most important pieces of, of uh, literature that was there for when then President Obama decided to enact uh, PAMA and, and require uh, CDS for, for outpatients was a study that came out of Minnesota where the, the largest payers got together with the biggest uh, net, hospital networks and decided to use uh, CDS in place of these uh, radiology benefit managers. And the agreement was that instead of using the radiology benefit managers, which were basically uh, people that, that manually basically said yes or no to studies that were being asked to do, um, you would have this automated uh, using CDS that ha is based on the appropriateness criteria, based on vetted uh, evidence-based medicine as to what are the best studies to do. Using that instead of these manual radiology benefit managers. And as a result of that study, they showed that there was a, a, a significant decrease. And I, I can't remember the exact numbers. I believe it was somewhere in the order of 120 or $130 million saved um, from studies using CDS. And on top of that, getting the same kind of recommendations each and every time because, well, the software is consistent. It's going to do the same thing each and every time. Whereas that depending on which radiology benefit manager you use, you might have 10 people and they might have you know, five different answers a lot of times. So um, they showed that it was transparent and reproducible, but also that it saved money. And so that's why I think they started from that, from that angle. Now, having said that, I, I mentioned that, for example, the PCAR starts from a different angle and says, hey, is this study even appropriate to do or not? Forget about what's the best study to do. Let's just talk about, should we even do this study? And we're now seeing that in our and these these subcommittees, such as the one I'm in for neuroradiology, that they're they're starting to also put that into the appropriateness criteria, and so they they're starting to score it in some cases. And I don't think it's been universal, but they can start to score it that if there's no study that's recommended for that indication, that'll actually be reflected in the score. So we're moving also in that direction so that we can capture not only what's the best study for a given indication, but Hey, in some circumstances, maybe the best study to do is no study. That's a 
That's a great point. Early in CDS development, I remember uh, there was a phase where uh, if no study was appropriate, what would happen is the clinician would order the study they want, and then they would receive notification that the study they wanted was inappropriate, and here are five other studies that are inappropriate. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Which kind not, of made no sense, right? <laughs> yeah, not, not a big satisfier. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, um, you know, you brought up uh, prior authorization, and certainly um, I think clinicians who order anything, imaging studies, uh, consultations, uh, sleep tests, anything, have had a lot more interaction with the concept of prior authorization over the last five or 10 years than they might have wanted to have had. Um, why, uh, why do you think the CDS that we're describing here is an improvement over the traditional human-based prior authorizations that's in that are in place now? Oh, I think there are there are the multiple benefits. So I, I mentioned already that one is reproducible. So you'll get the same answer no matter each each and every time. And there is a there is a, a measure of variability depending on which radiology benefit manager might happen to see a case. You know, it, it might they may say yes on one day, and maybe somebody else might have a different reason for saying no. So it's a little bit more variable, and sometimes it's not clear why uh, one would be authorized and one might not be. Whereas with CDS, it's going to run through the same algorithm each and every time. So it's reproducible and it's it's transparent. So there there's consistency for sure. Another reason that it's very useful is think about the ordering process itself. When you go through a CDS system, the clinical decision support software, you're actually you're actually implementing it at the time of the order. And so it's going through right away and the patient knows that they're going to get the right study because it's already gone through that vetting process. Now think about it from a manual process point of view, how that would work. You basically write an order. Um, if there is a pre-authorization, then somebody has to look at it. Now that's going to take time. So immediately you're already seeing that there's a delay. But let's just say, let's just pretend there's not even a pre-authorization. Not every single insurance company uses pre-authorization, but some do. Let's say it gets to the point where the patient schedules a study. And the patient gets there, and now the technologist who's going to do the study, say a CT technologist, looks at the study and realizes uh, that this is actually not the best study to do, that there actually is a different study to do. And this is a scenario that is not uncommon. We, we see this not uncommonly. The technologists will, we have some great technologists that will figure it out. They'll call, they'll call us, they call the resident, and, the, and, and we'll see that, yeah, we agree, this isn't the best study. We need another study. So now you got to go back, you have to get a new script, and hopefully oh. you didn't need a pre-authorization because if you did, then you're going to need a pre-authorization, which is going to take even more time. Now you have a patient who basically has wasted their time because now they're not getting the right study and they have to reschedule it. You have the network or the, the imaging facility that now has a wasted slot in which somebody else could have been there. And so there's waste all around. When you have a CDS system, it's done upfront. You already know it's the right study because it's gone through the vetting process. And so you sort of eliminate that whole chain of possible downstream inefficiencies. So you can see it's just a much more efficient way of doing things. I can't imagine that it does much for the uh, patient provider relationship. If um, the patient leaves and is told that what their doctor wanted to do for them was wrong. Absolutely. You have a lot of frustrated patients and that can lead to when they do their surveys, which is part of how we are actually graded as, as physicians and as networks, 
you're right. That's not that's not great for a patient interaction. I'd be I'd be pretty annoyed if I took off work only to find out that the wrong thing was ordered and I have to come back another time. So very understandable. Yeah. You might not blame the insurance company. You might just blame your doctor. And uh, I think that has that has real healthcare um, impacts if it erodes the trust between the patient and their doctor. Um, well, uh, Ryan, for me, this has just been uh, a pleasure. You know, I learn so much every time I talk to you. Um, we're lucky to have someone like you in radiology. Um, you contribute so much to the field. I, I, I really like to just give you the floor um, here for a minute or two. If there are any other issues you feel that I didn't touch on, um, if you have any closing comments you'd like to make, um, uh, we'd really love to hear them. Sure. I think one thing we didn't touch on is the current state of where the mandate is. And I think that's important for people to know that we're still in the middle of an educational testing year. So that was extended from uh, the previous final rule. So right now um, we're, we're allowed to test the use of CDS and make sure it's running properly. And we, nobody is going to get penalized for not using CDS appropriately, as you mentioned, um, down the line and specifically theoretically on January 1st, 2021, we're gonna need to prove that we use uh, CDS or the clinical decision support software for our outpatients, specifically in the for the CMS patients. Um, and so we'll have to notate you know, which software we used and also, uh, and also the MPI and just verify that we actually use it now. We don't actually have to use the recommendation. All we have to do at this point anyway is to just prove that we used it. But now is the time, if, if you haven't uh, gotten on board with trying out the software, now's, now's the time to do it. Even though you're not getting penalized, you definitely want to use it, uh, get your providers uh, used to it and answer their questions now and sort of tweak it uh, to what you need it to be because we're in middle of March right now. You know, it's only nine short months away um, when theoretically uh, we're going to be needing to use this if we want to get reimbursed for that population in CMS. Great point. Great point. Ryan, thanks again. Um, you know, regardless of being recorded, this is a pleasure. Um, I, I really, uh, uh, I really value your input. And I think that uh, every health system has a lot to learn from Einstein's experience um, and your work specifically. Um, so we'll certainly um, invite people to reach out with questions uh, for further discussion. Uh, would you be open to that? Absolutely. Always open to answer any questions for sure. Great. Thanks for spending time with us today, Ryan. No, thanks for having me. This has been great. I, I appreciate the kind words and uh, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Don't forget to check the show notes for more information on today's topic. Insight, innovation, transformation. Visit us online at changehealthcare.com.